MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 144 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Lots to cover today, Allison. In the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial, Trump has been fined cash money for violating Judge Engron's gag order. There's some damning testimony about Trump's Wall Street property. Ivanka has found the motion to keep from testifying Trump's lawyers having to apologize to prosecutors, and finally, a call for a forensic investigation into Weisselberg's emails. Oh, that's so fun. Uh, and then down in Georgia, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro have pled guilty. There are 16 defendants remaining, uh, and they are both agreeing to cooperate to avoid jail time, along with a plea agreement in the Michigan fraudulent electors case that flew under the radar. And finally, we'll talk about the chaos with House Republicans as we enter week three, almost week four, without a speaker. But first... We'd like to thank some patrons. We're waiting a couple more weeks to thank our new patrons, but we'll have some Hall of Famers to thank now. Again, we couldn't do this without you, so thank you so much for supporting the show. To sign up, head to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E, 4-5-P-O-D. And for our Hall of Famers this week, we have I'm a Trash Bag from Arizona. I've updated my shout-out name to this, another Minneapolitan, uh, backdropbooks.com. Then, of course, there's I'm fast at sex, penis, 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 pen, because they ran out of room, Sloan Russell and Kirkland J. Bateman. You know, hey, thanks to I'm fast at sex, because without you, we couldn't do this. And for all of our other Hall of Famers, too, we really do appreciate you supporting us. Um, so that is, uh, that is our pitch to our patrons. We had a wonderful happy hour on zoom this past Friday. We had hundreds of people in attendance and we got to every single one of the questions for everybody who had their hands raised. So again, thanks for joining us. All right. Um, where do we start? Hmm. Well, but <laughs> we've got so many places, so many states to choose from. Let's, let's go up to New York. So in New York, Trump's lawyers filed a motion to quash Ivanka's subpoena. Moskowitz argued that subpoenas should be thrown out since they were not properly served and because the attorney general lacks jurisdiction to force Ivanka Trump, who is no longer a New York resident, to uh, comply with the subpoenas. Now, in a Thursday email that was entered as an exhibit to the motion, a lawyer for the attorney general's office indicated they do not plan to request Judge Arthur Engron hold Ivanka Trump in contempt. Now, before you get too upset about that, they noted... 
We don't plan to do that because instead we plan to file a motion today to compel her to appear in court, according to the email. Now, in the meantime, Ivanka filed a motion to keep from testifying. Uh, day 14 of the proceedings gets underway today following a motion filed late Thursday last week by Ivanka seeking to quash three subpoenas that would compel her to testify in the trial. Trump's eldest daughter, who is no longer a part of the Trump Organization by 2016, was dismissed from the civil lawsuit by an appeals court this last June. But the New York Attorney General still plans to call her as a witness in the state's case. In early September, the AG sent subpoenas to three corporate entities affiliated with Ivanka Trump to force her to testify in person. I, I mean, my sense, what do you think, Allison? My sense is that she clearly, I think, is going to end up testifying. The, the fact that she was removed as a uh, as a party, I, I don't think has a direct relevance to whether or not they can compel her to testify as a witness. Uh, I, I don't see it holding a lot of uh, chance of, of success, but I, I don't know. Who knows? I, I can't imagine it working. No, I agree. I mean, just because you're not a party to the lawsuit doesn't mean you can't be compelled to testify. And uh, I'm sure New York, just like Georgia, um, has a, a process to get people from out of state to testify. I'm sure there's one here. And we'll keep you uh, posted as to whether or not the judge grants that motion. I'm pretty sure he probably will. We'll see what ends up happening. But in the meantime, the New York Attorney General has asked for a forensic investigation into Alan Weisselberg's emails. So here's what happened. <laughs> About a week and a half ago, Weisselberg testified that he didn't recall. I have no I have no idea. I don't remember any of this. I didn't have a role in discussing the Trump triplex that was, you know, they you know, the Trump organization was saying it was 33,000 square feet and worth far more than it actually was, uh, instead of it being just 10,000 square feet and worth worth far less. But then a reporter from Forbes wrote an article saying, Weisselberg lied on the stand. I have emails to prove it. And here they are. Uh, and <laughs> he, he, he was adamant. Weisselberg was personally involved in this for several years, you know, about, you know, the valuation of the triplex apartment. Now, when the New York Attorney General got a hold of the emails, she found out they weren't handed over during discovery. So she penned a letter to the judge. She said, based on a review of the documents produced by the defendants, Office of Attorney General has identified likely omissions from production around inquiries from Forbes in 2016. In response to subpoenas, defendant produced some documents reflecting ongoing exchanges with Forbes, but it appears they have not produced a later set of emails between Weisselberg and Ekovich, who's from Forbes. We would therefore propose that the monitor, a court monitor, undertake a forensic examination of electronic data held by the Trump Organization for the very brief period from August to September of 2016 to determine if all responsive information has been produced. And James wants the monitor to submit a report with her findings of the likely omissions by Friday, October 27th. That is this Friday, my friends. Yeah. And look, these aren't just like, you know, uh, there are 100 emails talking about how the grass is green and there are 10 more emails saying the grass is green that weren't turned over. The things that weren't turned over are important because they appear to contradict what Weisselberg was testifying to on the stand under oath. So, it you know, it is it is not only potentially a violation of their discovery obligations, but a particularly relevant one to the extent that, you know, whatever story Weisselberg was trying to tell that, oh, I don't remember, I didn't have any role in this, would very clearly uh, implicate him in being involved in that activity. So separate and distinct about whether or not Weisselberg may face additional criminal exposure for 
perjuring himself on the stand, which is a real possibility depending on what they say. They're absolutely relevant to the case that Trump's defense is trying to make in, in a very uh, harmful way. So I would expect this isn't, that's not a long time frame. I mean, they're asking for a very limited scope, two months in 2016. So and material that's already uh, in hand or they can be produced fairly quickly. So my, my hope and expectation that would be that this could be uh, acted on fairly quickly and certainly, you know, Forbes is a reputable organization. They're not going to sit out there and, you know, publish something that isn't true, exposing themselves to libel by publishing something that isn't true. So I suspect they not only have the information, but the information is accurate. And we'll see, you know, maybe maybe Donnie can uh, join, well, Weissenberg can in back up in Rikers after, uh, you know, some fresh <laughs> criminal activity. Yeah. And I, I think the important part here is that... Uh, if, you know, she said they did produce some of the documents from the couple months before, but they didn't produce the later set. So it's not like they just didn't produce any of them. They can't really call this an accident. You know what I mean? Like we, we got some of them, but we didn't get all of them. And these are the pertinent yeah. ones. That's really interesting that, that you were able to find those, but not these. So I think that that's probably doesn't reflect well. For, for Alan Weisselberg and the discovery process pursuant to these subpoenas that he could be in contempt. It could be obstruction. I mean, there's all sorts of things, a perjury, like you said, we'll see what ends up happening, but he was whisked off the stand pretty quickly uh, when this went down uh, and he failed to recall stuff that people knew that he knew and have the receipts to back it up. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that it would not surprise me, even if, you know, he was trying to play the game. Part of it is you have the information that you can put in front of a witness. You suspect they're lying, that they actually absolutely do remember. And then if you had this material, you could put it in front of them, have them read it uh, to the, you know, in front of the judge and then give them an out by saying, hey, does that help refresh your recollection? And clearly what these appear to say, you know, they would shoot down anybody saying, oh, no, I still don't remember. But yeah, I agree that that's coming uh, quickly, I would hope. Now, Additionally, uh, in trial testimony, another witness disavowed a Trump organization claim. During the summer of 2016, uh, before a surprise upset presidential election, Donald Trump's company valued the price of his Wall Street skyscraper at more than $735 million. Now, the Trump organization claimed to have arrived at that figure using a capitalization rate provided by the then executive director of Cushman & Wakefield, one of the world's largest real estate services firm. But last Tuesday, that executive, Douglas Larson, testified that he never gave the advice that was attributed to him. Larson testified instead that the Trump organization never tasked him to provide any appraisal, a task that he performed for the lenders. But the company's financial statements claimed that the executive relayed the cap rate estimate over the phone. And, you know, all of this uh, via, you know, there, there are a few reporters who are there at the courthouse doing uh, great reporting. But in particular, Adam Klasfeld, this this particular information that he's relaying out of there. And I think, Allison, if I remember, it wasn't just on one occasion that they no. said, hey, that he gave this advice that it was time after time after time again that they were citing Larson giving him this uh, this opinion. And he's like, no, never. It didn't happen. So I this just it was such a house of cards. And it's it's at least through testimony becoming very apparent that, you know, as, as everybody sort of suggested and, and insiders who knew that the real estate empire, the Trump organization was just filled with fraud. Yeah. And it wasn't even a I don't remember that phone call. It was a I, that never happened. I remember that never happened. <laughs> you know, it's extremely dispositive. So um, more bad news. And it's just going to keep coming um, as, as this trial goes on. Now, 
Another thing that happened this week is Judge Engeron fined Donald Trump $5,000 for violating his very limited gag order because, you know, Trump went out on Truth Social and posted a bunch of uh, doxing and negative uh, stuff attacking Judge Engeron's clerk in his court. And Engeron blew up at Trump and said, "There, I have no patience for that. You will not attack my clerk. You will delete your Truth Social post. Uh, And if you do it again, you will face consequences, sanctions, fines, jail, you know, contempt, etc. So Trump apparently took the post down from Truth Social, but left up a mirror post on his campaign website. Now, it was Midas Touch, right? The the guy, the Midas brothers that found it. This is an independent, uh, you know, uh, news reporting outlet. And they reported it. And that alerted the New York Attorney General, who then alerted the judge and judge Engeron uh, ended up fining him $5,000 and he the the justification for the low amount cuz you know $5,000 to Trump is nothing uh well maybe maybe these days it it's <laughs> it's a lot but uh it was a low amount because first of all it was his first violation of the gag order and second of all the team Trump uh team Trump argued it was an accident. We can't possibly know where all these posts are, your honor. We, you know, it was inadvertent. We'll take it down now. Um whether it was inadvertent or not uh is impossible to prove. So that that's the lowest um first foray into uh any kind of I guess accountability for violating the gag order. And we'll see if more occur. So that happened this week. That was kind of fun. Yeah. And what was interesting, too, is that uh, Chris Kyes, one of Trump's attorneys, tried to minimize it by saying, hey, look, you know, not that many people look to it. Yeah, it was put into an email. The email was sent to about 25,800 recipients, only opened by about 6,700 of them. So, by the way, people receiving Trump uh, emails for uh, his campaign, they do track which emails you open up and that in total about 3,700 people viewed the post on the website. So that website is not getting a whole lot of traffic, but I think you, I agree with you. I mean, 5,000 bucks doesn't mean financially much to Trump, but I do think it sets a a very good consistent message with, you know, I don't care. I said no. Sure, maybe it was an oversight, but no is no. And you didn't comply with that. So it keeps, I think, and, and what you do note I mean, there are all kinds of like Chutkin stayed the very limited gag order and Trump is stomping all over that. You know what he's not stomping all over? Anything out of the New York state court because, Mm -hmm. you know, Engron is saying, here's the standard, here's the line. I'm going to enforce it. Now, again, you know, we can we can argue or talk elsewhere about, you know, whether or not Chutkin's being wise. And I think she probably is to give a lot of deference to not gagging him and doing anything that's, you know, a, a overturnable issue. But the fact of the matter, I mean, Trump's a bully. And when he stood up to, he backs down. And that's what I think we're seeing in New York. Yeah. And, you know, Judge Chutkin gave him a very brief window to appeal to her, the limited gag order she put down. And so she gave him a very temporary stay while he took a few days to write that appeal. I think it expires at the end of this week. Um, so she can consider that appeal or it'll it'll last until she makes a decision on the appeal, perhaps. Uh, but in that two-day time frame, since she stayed that limited gag order, he went and called Jack Smith deranged, a very specific hypothetical she brought up during that hearing. Um, he attacked uh, Sidney Powell. He attacked... Uh, Michael Flynn. Uh, he attacked, like, also he attacked the Australian cardboard guy, right? All the, all these people who could be potential witnesses. Now he's probably a witness in the Mar-a-Lago case, right. but we don't know if he's a witness or not in the DC case. Um, 
But he said exactly and specifically what the limited gag order prevents him from saying because it is temporarily stayed, just going. And I think that that is going to be ammunition that the Department of Justice and Jack Smith can use to oppose his appeal. 100%. And like, look, he does exactly this when the minute you put that stay on there, he went out and called me deranged. Uh, something you specifically brought up. Totally agree. I mean, he could not be, in my opinion, stupider than going out and doing precisely what the gag order prohibited from. Had he stuck to his guns and just complained about Joe Biden indicting him and being behind the cause of all this and, you know, the the vote wasn't stolen and everything else, he'd be fine. But he instead precisely goes and cannot help himself. He's got, you know, this toddler-like urge to like, you know, tell me not to knock the glass off the table. Well, I'm going to go knock it off the table. It's like some oppositional defiance disorder that he's got. But I am certain <laughs> that when DOJ files what their, their response this week, I will bet you in the bar a drink that included in the examples of what he's doing are these very things that he's been bleeding, tweeting, truthing, whatever, uh, over the past couple of days. So he's his own worst enemy in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's the old Ren and Stimpy uh, Space Madness episode. Can he resist (laughs) the red candy-like button that beckons him ever closer? Nope. Nope. No, no, (laughs) No. he cannot. (laughs) And and speaking of Chris Kyes, he had to apologize in a sidebar because last Thursday morning, and this is again from uh, the great reporting that's coming out of New York, uh, his Kyes and a counsel for the New York State Attorney General Letitia James's office clashed loudly during a sidebar conference, so loudly, in fact, that reporters in attendance could hear some of what was being said. And though it took place dozens of feet from the press and public. One of the heat exchanges between the AG's counsel, Colleen Faraday, and Trump's attorney, Chris Kyes, was so loud that it sharply reverberated across the ceremonial courthouse. Law 360 later reported that sources said Kyes made a dismissive comment when asked a question by Ingram's law clerk, Allison Greenfield, commenting that he was speaking to the judge, not to her. Legal news outlet added that Kai's also questioned Faraday's intelligence before apologizing. Greenfield and Faraday were the only women present at the sidebar conference. A source familiar with the conversation corroborated that account to the messenger. Now, again, you know, in the in the kind of category of like self-inflicted wounds, there it is clear to anybody following this trial, let alone the participants in the trial, that Ingeron's respect for and use of clerk Allison Greenfield is extraordinary. And that if you're going to not, you know, disagree, but essentially shit talk because I'm talking to the judge and also, by the way, you're a woman is part of the, you know, the undercurrent of what's going on. It's not going to work out well for you. And I don't think this is the thing at a sidebar that's intended to either curry public favor or lay the groundwork for a successful, uh, you know, appellate no. motion. This is just- that ship is uh, sailed. Right. This is just a, a, another sort of like poor- Things I would not want my attorney to do on my behalf sort of thing. I would be so embarrassed. Oh, God. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're, uh, court was adjourned on Monday due to some COVID things. I think somebody came down with COVID. But it will continue this week. Uh, Cohen's testimony is expected this week. And uh, Adam Klassfeld over at The Messenger, on, on it as always, um, has uh, broken the news that Trump is expected to attend during Cohen's testimony. So... We'll see how that goes. Um, I, I will be following Adam Klassfeld pretty closely on Twitter uh, for, for that. Uh, he'll he'll lot, probably live tweet from the courtroom, so keep an eye on that. All right, we have to take a quick break, uh, but we have a lot more to get to, so everybody stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, welcome back. Let's head down to Georgia with some major news in the Fulton County District Attorney's RICO case. We're now down to 16 defendants. 16. Hey, not so fast. Make that 15. This is Allison Gill from the future from Tuesday morning. And I have some breaking news. Jenna Ellis has also flipped and pled guilty. And Pete and I will talk all about it and the details on next week's episode. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. There's some big news that McAfee denied both Powell and Chesbro's motions, but guess what? It doesn't matter. He denied Chesbro and Powell's motion to dismiss on the supremacy clause and then denied Chesbro's motion to exclude his fraudulent elector memos from evidence. Now, why doesn't it matter? Because both Sidney Powell and the cheese pled guilty after this is all after Chesbro rejected that. Now, does this mean that the DA has a weak case? And that's the talking point coming out of the right. Now, Lisa Rubin has some great sort of analysis saying it's a win for everyone except for the 16 remaining defendants. <laughs> Primarily and first and foremost, and I agree with her 100%, the biggest win is that the DA doesn't have to go to trial and show everyone 
the case, the way they plan to present it, and all their evidence. Now, everybody, people are saying, well, they're getting it through discovery. They have it. It doesn't matter. There is a huge difference between the material that you get to see that's turned over in discovery from going in and watching the way the state presents their case. And so, again, I, I agree with Lisa that this is the biggest win, in my opinion, for Fulton County prosecutors. Now, for Powell and Cheese, they don't have to go to jail. Powell uh, pled guilty to all misdemeanors and Chesbro pled guilty to a felony, but both of them escaped any jail time. Now, what that also means is because we don't have to go through trial, the remaining 16 can now go sooner and in addition, as you just mentioned, without the benefit of having seen the prosecution's case. And then finally, this does, I think, have some benefit to Jack Smith because they're both unindicted co-conspirators in his federal case against Trump. So, you know, it, it will be interesting to me to see how that dynamic plays out between their, their plea and their agreement to testify at the state level versus what they are or aren't going to do with the feds. But, you know, at the end of the day, what this means are the speedies are done. The, the remaining 16 are on the regular speed. Uh, this will proceed more quickly because what Fulton County had said is had the speedies gone to trial, the other cases would get pushed back until those were resolved. Without that encumbrance there, they can move forward uh, much more quickly. And what was interesting was... You know, Cindy Powell immediately gets out. She tweets something about she heard everybody's prayers and now she can get back to important work and promptly goes back to, you know, touting her foundation, which is full of uh, election conspiracy theories. And frankly, just, you know, it's like opening a window back into 2020 with all the crack and nonsense. But nevertheless, what was interesting, too, is that then Trump later was apparently surprised about Powell's plea. And he, again, bleated truth that saying, hey, you know, she wasn't my lawyer and mentions that she wasn't his lawyer because there would have been a conflict with Flynn. And that's really there's and then proceeds to go on and talk about the how Flynn was innocent. So many people were innocent. He was proud to give him a pardon. And so there's a bunch of crap in there that's like, okay, again, if you are talking to your or about your unindicted co-conspirator and all of a sudden you're bringing up a person that she represented and all of a sudden bringing up the fact that you were proud to have given a pardon to people that you believe were innocent, just like all these other innocent people, it sure feels like witness tampering. And this is another thing that I would not be surprised to see show up in Jack Smith's pleadings later this week. Yeah. It kind of blows my mind that he brought up the pardon because- Back when that happened, you know, back in 2020, after uh, he announced on Twitter that Sidney Powell was added proudly to the team of lawyers with Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, um, they did that press conference. Remember where Rudy's face melted? <laughs> and, you know, Elite she was doing her strike force. <laughs> <laughs> she was doing her uh, Venezuela pitch and her Dominion voting machine pitch. Um, and a couple days after that, they the the team Rudy and Jenna like publicly pushed her out and all of the reporting that we got from the media was oh seems like Sidney Powell's even just too crazy for Donald Trump but as it turns out that probably wasn't why he was pushing uh Sidney Powell out off the legal team because a couple of days later that's when he pardoned Flynn and she was representing Flynn at the time helped him blow up his plea deal and so, you know, to, I guess, prevent some sort of a conflict of interest or, you know, so it didn't look like one of his lawyers was representing somebody that he pardoned, I think they publicly sort of 
distanced themselves from Sidney Powell, not because she was crazy, but because he didn't want the conflict. And that he brought that up in this recent Truth Social post is just fascinating to me. The timing is so in, is so suspect um, because, you know, the DA, Fonnie Willis, you know, she was trying to force Flynn to testify and he sued and she won and, and he had to testify to the DA. She asked him about the circumstances surrounding that pardon. And of course, very recently, Jack Smith mentioned it in his um, indictment of Donald Trump that, you know, that one paragraph about Sidney Powell is about that time period yeah. when she was on Trump's legal team and then all of a sudden wasn't. And he, uh, Jack Smith also alluded to uh, pardons in his filing opposing Donald's motion to dismiss his D.C. charges. You know, Donald says, I'm absolutely immune. I have the most perfect immunity. And he filed that whole motion to dismiss under absolute immu immunity. Jack Smith responded. And one of the things he talked about is saying, if you do this, Supreme Court or court, if you if you do this, then the president is a king and a president could issue a corrupt pardon as a part of a quid pro quo. And that is illegal. They called it out as being illegal. And so right a couple like a day or two after that filing came out, after Jack Smith calls corrupt pardons illegal, he just happens to say, Sidney Powell's not my lawyer. It would have been conflicted because I pardoned Flynn. Like, wow, what? That it just blows my mind. Like, yeah. well, you just admitted to a bunch of stuff you probably shouldn't have said. Yeah. Again, keep your mouth shut. And again, I, you know, this isn't exactly breaking news because I know at least Marcy Wheeler picked up on it. But back during the time that Sidney Powell was representing Mike Flynn and they were trying to roll back his uh, plea, the government provided a series of handwritten notes by a bunch of FBI people, including mine. And what the government did is they put, they actually inserted on my notes dates, like wrote in dates that were not my handwriting yep. and pass it off as mine. Those were subject to a protective order. And the way that works in cases like this is like, look, we're turning this over. I mean, it was BS because it was Jeff Jensen's corrupt endeavor to like with bar to overturn it. But the, the notion, those dates gave the impression that Joe Biden was the person that suggested that Mike Flynn might be prosecuted under the Logan Act, which was, again, not accurate. that That's not where it came from. But those dates then, what was interesting is like two days later or shortly, one, one, two or three days later, Trump in a debate with Biden uses that false date to attack him in a presidential debate. So it's very clear or seems very clear to me that Barr and Barr's corrupt DOJ provides material under protective order to Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell then turns around, violates the protective order and provides it to the Trump campaign. And Trump uses it in an attack on Joe Biden, which, of course, is nonsense because it's a made up date. So, you know, again, long story short, DOJ had to apologize, told the court they didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. They removed it. But the whole point is. I don't think if you were Donald Trump or Sidney Powell or frankly, Mike Flynn, you don't want a spotlight being shown on your behavior during this entire period from the representation of Flynn all the way through January 6th, January 20th. It's just, it's a bad period with a lot of bad things that went on. And Trump, by God, again, that red button, can I avoid touching it? No, no, you can't. You're going to keep fucking pushing it again and again and again. And I have no idea why he chose to say anything because nothing good, nothing good is going to come. There's nothing he can say that is going to be helpful other than just shutting up. And he's mm. just incapable of doing so. Yeah, he is. And and here's the the great thing about that DOJ filing recently, just a few days ago. 
um, to opposing Trump's motion to dismiss his his D.C. case. They gave four examples of crimes that should be um, investigated and prosecuted that a president could commit during his time in office and then be prosecuted for after he gets out of office. And they use these, he just lists these hypotheticals off. Like, so what you're saying, if, if, if this is true, if what Trump says is true, then a, a president could not be prosecuted after he leaves office for having his FBI plant evidence against his political enemies. And he goes on to say, and you're also saying that a president, once he leaves office, could not be criminally prosecuted for giving someone a pardon in exchange for a bribe. You're also saying that the president could call out the National Guard to attack his political enemies. And you're also saying, hypothetically, a president could sell nuclear secrets and and get away with it. And all of those things are things that Trump has done. The FBI planting evidence, adding those dates to your notes, Pete. Corrupt yeah. pardon in exchange for a bribe? Mike Flynn, Roger Stone. Selling nuclear secrets? <laughs> Where he got that? Calling out the National Guard? Trump did call out the National Guard. He, he said he wanted to send 10,000 National Guard troops out to, you know, stop the steal or whatever. All of those things are things. And Marcy Wheeler pointed this out in a great post on, on her, on her you know, uh, emptywheel.net. Every single, and, you know, Andy and McCabe and I talk about it in this week's, the most recent episode of Jack, too. Like, huh, all of those hypotheticals are real close mm, not, to not stuff so much that hypothetical right yeah exactly <laughs> like that's really that's i thought that was really really entertaining um and sly and like yes. gosh it's, if it's, you say the president I, is a king he could do these things yes. you know hypothetically if donald trump said be there will be crazy it's like oh yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I see what you did there right yeah no yeah. That, that's i again the, the best course of action for trump is to shut up and he's not doing that. And I, he's not going to stop. So, you know, it'll be amusing. But uh, hey, let's, I think we need to take a break. So let's do yep. that. Stick around. And uh, we're going to, I think, um, got more to talk about in Georgia. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. 
expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Let's stay in Georgia with some in-depth reporting on Kenneth Chesbro from The New York Times. And, you know, we can we can talk a little bit about that once we get through it. And we also have some news from uh, Michigan, big news from Michigan that went underreported because of the, you know, the plea agreements of, of the cheese and Kraken. No, we've got New York Times, more cheese bro correspondence. And this is a Maggie Haberman joint. On December 24th, she says, Kenneth Chesbro and other lawyers fighting to reverse the election defeat were debating whether to file litigation contesting Biden's victory in Wisconsin. Now, Chesbro, or Chesbro, excuse me, argued that there was little doubt that the litigation would fail in court. He put the odds at winning at 1% as Trump continued to push his baseless claims of fraud. That's according to emails reviewed by the Times. But the, quote, relevant analysis, Chesbro argued, quote, is political. Now, Chesbro's lawyers have argued that his work was shielded by the First Amendment and that he acted within his capacity as a lawyer. And I know I keep changing from Chesbro to Chesbro. I'm I'm just going to keep happening. Sorry. Now, Mr. Trump also signaled that one of his possible defenses is that he was just acting on advice of counsel, the old advice of counsel uh, defense. But... These emails undercut any effort to show that lawyers were focused on legal strategies, solely on legal strategies. Rather than considering it just law and the facts of the case, Chesbro made clear he was considering politics and was well aware of how the Trump campaign legal filings could be used as ammunition for Republicans' efforts to overturn the results when Congress met on January 6th. Quote, just getting this on file means that on January 6th, the court will either have ruled on the merits or, vastly more likely, will have appeared to dodge again. That's what Chesbro wrote in an email chain. He added that the lack of action by the Supreme Court would feed the impression that the courts lacked the courage to fairly and timely consider these complaints, and it would justify a political argument on January 6th that none of the electoral votes from the states with regard to which the judicial process has failed should be counted. Again, of the chances of success, I think, as I said earlier, Chesbro estimated, quote, the odds the court would grant effective relief before January 6th, I'd say only 1%. But there is possible political value. And he said the legal filings could produce a political payoff to bolster his argument that there should be at least uh, an extended debate in Congress about election irregularities. That's all political in nature, not legal. And Eastman responded, saying he believed the legal argument was rock solid, but the odds of success were not based on legal merits, but an assessment of the justices' spines. And he said, I understand that there is a heated fight underway. And Chesbro responded, I particularly agree that getting this on file gives more ammo to the justices fighting for the court to intervene. I think the odds of action before January 6th will become more favorable if the justices start to fear that there will be, quote, wild chaos on January 6th unless they rule by then either way. So that 
pretty much tanks his whole argument that he is giving legal advice because he admitted it was political in nature. Right. And the other thing, too, that his Chesbro's attorneys has been has been attorney has been out on the talks show circuit saying, look, Chesbro is not an election denier. If you ask him who won the election, he's going to say it was Joe Biden. So this whole idea that he he was providing legal advice because, you know, he believed or supported the idea that the election had been stolen. His attorney is going on record like repeatedly this past week saying, oh, no, 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 no. Joe, he believes Joe Biden won. He believes the election wasn't stolen. He doesn't believe that any of the things that Trump was claiming, claiming he doesn't agree to it. So when you combine and it isn't just one thing where he says, oh, it could be politically valuable. It's time and time and time again in legal filings and emails and statements saying, you know, this is meritorious from a political perspective. This could help politically. So I think the combination of what he truly believed and what he was saying, and then finally, that this wasn't, you know, the argument that what Trump was doing was within the scope of his duties as the president versus something that he was doing in the context of campaigning and running for election. All of this stuff comes together in a way that really is 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 harmful to a number of Trump's potential defenses. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, I, that's why I think Chesbro's testimony, whatever statement he made, is going to be so valuable. And, you know, with regard to the idea that they're not going to be giving up their prosecution um, and their case in, in the speedy trial now because they have pled out, um, I think it's it's important to note that, you know, because a lot of people were like, well, how would they give up Donald Trump's case if they're just going after Chesbro and Powell? You have to remember the nature of racketeering charges. Everyone is charged with the same thing and they're all connected and everyone's responsible for everybody else's stuff. That's how <laughs> that's the nature of Rico. So they would have to put on their full case and, and Trump would have gotten to get a preview of that, which would give him a leg up in preparing a defense. So it was very beneficial to the DA to not have these cases go to trial. So I would not call these sweetheart deals. I know some people are calling them sweetheart deals, but I, I don't really see it that way. Uh, and I would recommend everybody read uh, Lisa Rubin's piece for MSNBC on it. So that's just my thoughts. Yeah. And, and <laughs> while we're talking about all this stuff in Georgia and there's so much news there, what was overlooked, there's really big news out of Michigan that flew under the radar because of everything going on. This is from the Detroit News. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel's office has reached a cooperation deal with James Renner, one of the 16 fraudulent electors that she indicted earlier this year. Now, when it happened, it was the first arrangement of its kind to be publicly revealed in the electors probe. Judge Kristen Simmons granted a motion to drop the eight felony charges that had been brought against Renner. Now, also on Thursday, Simmons granted a request for a mental evaluation of another Trump elector, only the best, Timothy King of Ypsilanti. King's lawyer, Michael Vincent, said in court that King suffered, quote unquote, delusional and illogical thinking, and it had been difficult to get him to focus on the serious charges he's facing. According to the deal between Renner and the AG's office, Renner will quote-unquote cooperate fully with law enforcement to provide information about Michigan false slate of electors. Now, that was the same day that Sidney Powell pled guilty in Georgia, which is why if you're wondering, hey, that seems like a big deal, why did I not hear about it? Because anybody in the political news surrounding, the criminal news surrounding Donald Trump was was following the, you know, the unveiling of uh, Sidney's guilty plea. But, you know, this is a big deal. And I think one, again, Michigan was out in front 
with their charges. They're moving, uh, you know, quite obviously now moving with a great deal of speed or reaching reaching cooperation agreements. And they have, again, 16 fraudulent electors that were indicted earlier. And so now they're down to 15. But it's, uh, you know, it's a big deal. And I think much like Atlanta is important, not just for what happened in the state of Georgia, but also to the federal case that uh, Jack Smith is bringing. Michigan is the same thing, because when you look more outside of just these individual fraudulent electors, the question is to what extent it was coordinated as part of a national campaign, to what extent Trump knew about it, to what extent people in and around Trump like Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis and the, you know, the, the elite legal strike force team all were involved throughout this place. So whether or not Michigan gets there, I am sure that these proceedings are similarly of uh, a great deal of interest to Jack Smith and his investigators. Yeah, and I personally am looking for probably potentially more charges coming out of Michigan because, I mean, the main difference between Michigan and Georgia is that Georgia went after the architects like Trump, Eastman, Chesbro, Powell, you know, the people who put everything together. Michigan's still investigating those folks. Um, and in Antrim County, there was a similar voting machine breach like there was in Coffee County. Yep. And there's a national team who was fronting that and working on that. That includes people like Patrick Byrne and the Cyber Ninjas people and the Strickland Sullivan. I, I think that's the name yeah, of the Cat firm. Catherine Freeze and all these people like you're wondering, like, mm -hmm. why do I vaguely remember the name? It's because they were every fucking place where all these vote machine shenanigans were going on. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, no. So I think there might be additional indictments to come out of Michigan. And of course, I have been watching Arizona. Mm -hmm. Their, their uh, investigation is, is heating up. Uh, and so I would look for some indictments to come out of Arizona as well. And we'll see what ends up happening there. And we'll keep you posted. Um, all right. We have to take another quick break. But uh, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit 
standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. Let's now finally head down to Washington, D.C. and talk about the very latest coming out of the House of Representatives. Is now, this where we in... play yakety sax in the background? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the Benny Hill, the Benny Hill montage of like a bunch of sped up Republicans. Or the or... Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, keep in mind, as we're recording this, it's Monday evening. So we have no idea what on earth Republicans are going to screw up between now and when the show comes out on uh, early on Wednesday. But here's the latest of what we know on Monday afternoon. Now, as of now... There are nine speaker candidates. Of those nine, seven of them are election deniers. Seven of them believe Donald Trump should be the president right now, that Joe Biden did not honestly win the election. Seven of the nine candidates believe that. Now, Emmer and Scott voted to certify the election, but Emmer did sign on to that Texas lawsuit to overturn the election in a key swing state and news coming out late this afternoon. Again, Monday afternoon, he said Emmer apparently called and capitulated to Trump and did the Kevin McCarthy trip down to Mar-a-Lago equivalent, kissed his ass, use the analogy of a distasteful analogy of your preference to then get Trump to sort of say, well, yeah, he's a good guy. So who knows where this is going to go? What I can tell you in the whole winner loser column, not that we needed any more proof that Jim Jordan is an absolute goddamn loser, an untenable leader, somebody who has no place in the House of Representatives, let alone coaching an Ohio State wrestling team, let alone running for Speaker of the House. He lost badly. And, you know, in the whatever the ritual self immolation, you know, process is, needed three failed votes to convey that to him, but he lost. He lost again, and he finally lost a third time before he, you know, grumpily had to go back to like, I don't know, punching walls or whatever he does, knocking his head on the on the you know desk in the privacy of his office in frustration. Um, yeah, and he lost by bigger <laughs> margins each time. Um, he kept losing more uh, votes uh, with each ballot, and I remember for his third ballot, M- M- McCarthy nominated him, and he McCarthy opened with the statement that. Jim Jordan is one of the most effective legislators mm. of all time. And mm. he, everyone laughed at him uh, for, for that because, you know, as we know, he is like the least effective. He, he's the opposite of effective when it comes to being a legislator. And so he uh, eventually lost a behind the closed doors secret ballot um, vote badly and was removed as the speaker designee. And that's when these nine... Um, people, <laughs> going to be nice, nine people threw their hats in the ring to become speaker. Um, no one is going to be able to get to 217, especially, I mean, even if Emmer had a chance in hell, he's been endorsed by Trump now. That doesn't work well for you. I don't know how many times uh, an endorsed Trump candidate has to get his ass handed to him before you realize, don't go seek Trump's endorsement. I just don't. It, I, it boggles my mind. Uh, yeah. But uh, that's that's where we're at. And uh, as a, as we sit here Monday afternoon, 
Monday evening on the East Coast. There still hasn't been a vote. I don't know when a vote is scheduled. Um, but again, the, this might be the point. Um, Matt Gates and his what 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 does McCarthy call him? The Crazy Eight. Hmm. Uh, Gates and the Crazy Eights or something. I don't know. He's come up with some dumbass nickname. Um, as long as this goes, as long as the House doesn't have a speaker, we can't fund the government. The government will shut down, and the Ethics Committee investigation into Matt Gates is is on hold. So that's good news. Not having a speaker is good for Matt Gates, and not having a speaker, not having half of one of the branches of government um, being able to function, is good for autocrats. It's it's sending the message that democracy doesn't work, and that it's messed up, and there's gridlock in Washington, and. Both parties are the same and everyone should not vote. And I mean, this is the that's the message that you send when you want to have a strong man, uh, an autocrat come in, a dictator come in and save us from ourselves. And I alone can fix it and all that shit. So I think that's the purpose of this. I, as as disorganized and idiotic as they are, um, the chaos, again, it's it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, it, it is like looking in on an unruly preschool class. And speaking of an unruly preschool class, you look in at that class and James Comer is over in the corner eating his crayons, licking the lead paint off the windowsill. And he pops up and runs over to you and says, look, look, I found a $200,000 check. And you're like, w w what in the hell are you talking? Hey, we don't have a speaker. What What are you doing? What are you, what are you doing other than trying to get a speaker in place? But as it turns out, James Comer, Comer's newest evidence of the <laughs> massive conspiracy involving the Biden crime family is a $200,000 check, which, oh, by the way, as it turns out, occurred during a time that Joe Biden was not in office and represented a repayment of a loan from a family member, not from the government of Saudi Arabia, not from a Middle Eastern government, not from the government of Turkey, not from the Chinese, you know, the, the, nobody. His family member who was given a loan, he paid back. And James yeah. Comer sitting there with little pieces of crayon dribbling off his lips wants you to believe that he's finally found it. And it just, I, anytime you think, oh God, this is horrible, it, it couldn't get worse. Oh no, James Comer will see to it that it gets worse. <laughs> and he even admits it in his little screed, that he, a little video that he puts out. Um, you have to get to the the, the very end. You know, before he says, we'll get more evidence on this. But literally, mm -hmm. it's a copy of a check for 200 grand between Jim and Joe Biden for $200,000. And on the memo line, it says loan repayment. And that's it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what that's what their uh, quote, their new smoking gun is. Every week, it's something they find it. They go, this will work. And uh, they they fundraise off of it. They put it out there. It, it's just the dumbest, most ridiculous shit. Um, I, I like that this is this is their way of continuing their i guess weird quest against the Biden family without a functioning house but it but it's doing nothing but one it it's not Nobody. It's getting traction nowhere. He he is getting laughed. I mean, Steve Bannon has all but announced him the village imbecile of the <laughs> Republican Party in the House of Representatives. So he is lost. He goes on Fox News, and the reporters are like roll, rolling their eyes at him. There is nobody. There is no audience where he is seen as a credible voice. And to be doing this at a time in the face of such 
utter dysfunction on the Republican Party and their inability to elect a speaker for, like you said, what are we, three, four weeks now? The longest never happened before in our nation's history. But James Comer finds a check for $200,000 loan repayment. And by God, he's going to get up on his little soapbox and try and wave that around and, and believe that he's going to influence anybody in any way, shape, or form. It just is. It, it, that's, what we're, that's what we got. And it's why. Meanwhile, we have Saudi Arabia giving two billion dollars to Jared Kushner. Um, Where's that investigation? You know, Mm. (laughs) like Mm. two billion dollars, and it doesn't say loan repayment in the memo line uh, on that transaction. I guarantee. But yeah, well, I don't know what's going to happen in the House this week. It's uh, on one hand, it's entertaining to watch them implode and fight with each other and be idiots. But on the other hand, we need a functioning legislative branch of government. We've got a lot of shit going on right now. We need to fund a bunch of uh, of our allies. We have to uh, keep the government open. We, we, you know, I think... I think even Mitch McConnell uh, is trying to put together a, a, a bipartisan bill in the Senate to fund Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the border. Um, and if we don't have a Speaker of the House... I'm not sure how that's going to happen. Now, what was interesting is that last ballot for Jim Jordan, the one that he lost by 25 votes the most, um, there were at least five Republican votes for McHenry, who is the Speaker pro tem. And five Republican votes is all you need to join Democrats to get something done. And I think it's actually four. So I, I, but, you know, you'd have to trust them to do the right thing. So... I'm not sure where we go from here um, or if Democrats should even bother working. Like, I think what's happening is the Democrats are like, hey, bring us a solution and we'll help you out. But they, you know, the Republicans are like, no, we've got our own way. Um, And that way is to keep to keep the government uh, from functioning. So I don't I don't know what the solution is going to be, but uh, uh, hopefully we have one soon. Yeah, I'm not optimistic. I don't think there's enough. There, there's there's not enough pain from their constituents. People say, oh, it sounds bad. People are telling us bad that we're not able to uh, pass anything. But, you know, I'm still the lights are still on and, you know, the government offices are still open when I call. It's going to take, you know, I, I fear it's going to take a government shutdown or something really bad happening overseas, like a massive explosion of the, the scope of the war uh, between Israel and Gaza into something of a much broader regional. Something is going to have to happen to spur action because while it's politically embarrassing and politically damaging to the Republicans, it's not damaging enough, in my opinion, to force any way past this impasse. And it's going to it's gonna take something more politically. And I don't think we're there yet. Now, what if there isn't something? I mean, like if, if what's going on right now isn't enough, like uh, it was, you know, how we kept asking ourselves, what would it take for you to... Honestly, take an off ramp away from Trumpism. No, that not that, not that, not that, mm-hmm. not that, not an insurrection. It's like they never do it. So I don't know. I can't. I am incapable of imagining what sort of an event could precipitate them to act properly. Government shutdown. I think you know. God forbid, it's a broader war somewhere. But government shutdown that lasts more than a paycheck, where all of a sudden. The thousands upon thousands of government employees and troops, the military that are in the various that are in the various congressional districts where people no longer can pay their mortgage or pay for the food. And it becomes so untenable that they finally have to do something. But, you know, I worry it's going to take getting to there. And that's that's easily a month away. Agreed. 
All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to Clean Up on Aisle 45. We will have a bonus episode for you this weekend for patrons at the $2 level. Again, if you want to sign up, patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. You make the show go. We couldn't do it without you. And uh, thank you for supporting independent journalism and, and Pete's swearing habit because we really appreciate it. Um, and, and I, do you have any final thoughts before, before we go and <laughs> no, dive into the rest of this week? <laughs> already rhapsodizing over my, uh, you know, opinion of the Republicans in the House. But, you know, it's kind of a pathetic place that we find ourselves. You know, I had some hope that when the Jim Jordan's proxies attempt to use physical threats of violence to coerce votes for him for speaker uh, finally hit the outrage point, it seemed, amongst mainstream Republicans that maybe, maybe we had turned a corner of responsibility, but uh, I, I don't think we have. We may have dialed that behavior back a little bit, but any sort of broader movement, I'm worried it, it's not even going to move the needle. So that that's all I got. Yeah, and we'll see how Trump violates gag orders this week, and we'll bring it all to you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill, with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. 
There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.